0: I just remember thinking the contentment that even in the midst of all this, that uh, God has given to me through His grace. And I am thankful for that and just wanted to share that with you. So if I could ask you to stand, we're just going to read actually three verses. I'm going to leave verse 16 of our passage off because I'm going to use it later. Uh, But I'm just going to read 13, 14, and 15. I've entitled our sermon today, The Christian as Salt and Light, out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste or savor, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Amen. You may be seated. Let's just pray for a moment. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look into your word today, that uh, you might give the increase, that you would overlook the failings of the messenger, and that, Father, that you would uh, uh, give us understanding beyond that which we were able, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And if there be anything impure or impure in my heart even this day, I pray that you would remove it from me, and that you would help us to focus on your word, and that it might have an impact in our lives for eternity. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I've entitled the sermon today, The Christian is Salt and Light. And I, I hope that uh, this functions as a challenge to all of us as we go through this life. Now just a little historical background on this. This, uh, what we would call this passage, is typically referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where Jesus was giving his disciples. He took them up into the mountain. I think Chaplain James mentioned something about going up into the mountain today in our Bible, our Bible class. He took the disciples up into the mountain and he was going to give them instructions on how to live in this world. Uh, a part of that passage that I'm not going to go over today, but it's commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. And as the Lord took his disciples up into the mountain to talk with them. If you think about what was getting ready to happen. Our Lord was going to conquer death. That man may have life eternally. And the world, which at that time was the known Roman world, was getting ready to be turned completely upside down. The world was going to be revolutionized in a positive way. And we are here today because of those things that took place at that time in the history of the world. But the uh, passage here in Matthew, this is instruction given by Christ, teaching them how to live in the world. It's probably, and some may agree or may disagree with me on this, but it's probably one of the most preached passages in the Bible by both those that I would call the liberal do-gooders and Christians. And I'm just making a distinction between those two uh, because this passage has been used and been perverted by many in ways that our Lord never intended. Christ in the Sermon on the Mount here is calling the disciples to be fishers of men. They were getting ready to face much persecution, to be treated with contempt, Yet their lives were going to be a blessing to the world in which they lived. You know, usually for me, and I, I can't speak for everyone else, but for me, if I have to do something like this, usually there are things that occur in my life that sort of happen. And it causes me to think about something in, his, uh, in our Bible class it was said today. Uh, Chapter James said, Have you ever read a passage of Scripture that you've read a million times? And then you read it once and you say, wow, I didn't know that was, that was there. And so where this came about for me was several months ago, I was over at one of my son's home and we were having evening devotion with his children. And he was reading this passage of Scripture um, about salt and light. And it really hit me as I looked at those little children listening ...to my son talk about this passage. And I had to ask myself this question. And this is when I say the, when I said earlier that uh, many liberal do-gooders talk about this passage. Because what they've done is they've turned this passage into a passage of moral ethics. You know, how should I live in this world? But nothing about the changing of one's heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ... So I had to ask myself as we were uh, going through this devotion with my own children, my grandchildren, I asked the question, when we talk with them about this passage, are we just teaching them a code of ethics or how to act? Or are we teaching our children how to live? How to live life and know life eternal and to know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Because teaching them ethics maybe helps them in this world because they know how to act properly, but it doesn't change them from within. It doesn't change the heart of men. And so I had to ask myself that question. When we teach these things, are we teaching so that they may live? Or are we just teaching them so they can have a way to act or a a way to uh, operate in the world? It also made me think of when he read that passage, and I'm going to quote it a little bit today. But if you haven't read this book, a book by Francis Schaeffer, who was written in, uh, which was written in the late 70s, early 80s. The name of the book is, How Should We Then Live? He asked the question, how should we live in this world? And much of what he says is, what you see in the culture is a reflection of what's in the heart of men. And so that prompted further questions as I read this. And so today, I would say this is what I would call a living sermon. I guess every sermon should be a living sermon, uh, if that, that would be appropriate. Because these are questions, or it, it brings up questions or thoughts that I've been asking for me my entire life, my Christian life. How am I to be salt and light in a dark world. And so these words that we hear today, they were given to our disciples to, to encourage them as they were beginning to face persecution. So the first thing I want to do is I want to define salt and light. Now, we don't really believe when we read this passage that Jesus said, oh, the disciples, you're salt. You're like a salt block, you know, with Lot's, Lot's wife and you're not a light bulb. They're what's called a metaphor. A metaphor takes an inanimate or non-living object that has certain characteristics and applies it to living beings. For instance, I've thought of a metaphor that you might uh, relate to that would help us. If I said about Zephaniah, if I said Zephaniah is a jumping bean, a Mexican jumping bean. Well, he's really not a Mexican jumping bean, but if I said Zephaniah acts like a Mexican jumping bean at times, you would all understand what I mean because I'm using that in a metaphorical sense. So when we talk about salt, not that we're salt, but salt, if you look at the characteristics of salt, salt is a healer. You know, any of you have ever gone to the ocean and had a wound on your body? If you've noticed, after you're in that salt water for a couple days, that wound just like goes away. So salt is a healer. It adds flavor to foods. What a uh, um, dreary world we would have without salt for our foods. I know Mr. Patterson likes salt as well. He and I both like salt, so it adds flavor. But... The primary importance of salt is that without salt, if you, you know, uh, we've only had refrigerators for the last hundred years, so uh, BR, before refrigeration, if you had meat or you had something that you needed to preserve, you had to have salt because if you didn't have salt, the meat would putrefy, which is a fancy word for it will rot. So the primary function of salt is that it's a preserver, and it preserves. In fact, just as a note, with meat, Mr. Patterson may be able to say more on this, but I think I've read stories about people who have preserved meat and salt that's lasted 25 years. I mean, it's a long time. So salt is a preserver, so its primary function is that it preserves, keeps putrefaction from taking place. We talk about when it says we're salt and light, the word light. Well, how do we relate light to the Christian walk? Well, sunlight boosts one's mental health. You know, if you're sort of feeling down or whatever, you go outside and it's sunny, most people say that gives them a, a boost, their mood changes. So it improves your, your outlook. Uh, sunlight helps you to sleep better. It provides your body with vitamin D so you can can't get covid uh, it builds strong bones it prevents cancer it rids the body of disease and light also kills germs what do wives do with old mattresses or things they take them outside and put them in the sun right because that sun kills any germs that are on the surface many times people used to hang their clothing outside uh, I think that's really better than the dryer, but hey, modern convenience is what can I say? So, in the most basic sense, the salt of the gospel, which the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to this earth, he died for sinners, he rose again that those who are his own might have life. Salt, the salt of the gospel was to preserve the Christian from evil. And from the wickedness of the culture in the world in which they lived. Because uh, if you read the history of Rome, at that time, Rome was sort of coming to the end of its uh, time. And culturally, would nations destroy, it's like those in power are grasping for anything. And all types of things were coming. In Rome, the emperor or uh, the Caesar had been raised to the level of God. And so you could worship any God you wanted, even Jesus Christ, as long as you acknowledge Caesar. And so our God is exclusive. There is no other God. So the Lord knew that they were getting ready to come into a time of persecution. And so He was teaching about what it means to be salt and how that was to preserve them from this wickedness. And the light of the Gospel was that as He walked with them, Though not physically present, but with his spirit, that his light was to be a beacon to others around about them about the saving lives, life, grace of Jesus Christ, and it should affect by the way they live, it would affect the lives and actions of those round about them. Sometimes to salvation, sometimes not. So, who are The salt and light that's talked about in this passage today. Well, the first thing I'm going to do before I define who are the salt and light, I'm going to take a moment and define who is not salt and light. Because I think that's important in light of, like I said, this passage has been used by liberal do-gooders and those that were true Christians probably more than any other passage in the Word of God. And so I think it's important for us to understand what this means in light of that. In the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, there was a movement that uh, took place that attempted to redefine the gospel of what was taught in the Sermon of Mount from the gospel which I just proclaimed to more of a do-good movement, you know, a set of moral ethics like I talked about earlier. I guess you might even call it a counter-reformation. Remember, the reformation brought about because men realized their sin and that that apart from God, we were helpless. And so this counter-reformation that took place in the late 19th and early 20th century, it wasn't about an internal change. It was about changing the outward behavior of men without an inward transformation. You know, even in what I would call evangelical circles, uh, many have relegated, I, I, those of you that are of a Baptist background will relate to this, but there were little cliches that were used like, I don't smoke, I don't dance, I don't uh, drink or hang around with people who do. I mean, That was what the gospel was about. If the, that was really the true gospel, I have to say... Some of you here have had a bad influence on me. (laughs) But my point being that it's just relegated to just the do-good type things. Growing up, I always heard pastors talk about this thing called the social gospel. I never knew what they were referring to, but I understand now that was this do-goodism. Have you ever heard anyone say that I hope my good outweighs my bad talking about the relationship with their Savior I I now as I've come to grow in the Lord more in my my walk with Him I hear people say that and I cringe at times because I think they just don't understand or the one that that uh, really troubles me the most is when someone passes away who knows not a believer and they say, "Well, they're better off now." And I just think to myself, if that person could come back to this life over where they're at and what's going on in their their with their soul at this time, they would gladly come back to this this earth. So, but that was <clears throat> that was sort of the idea behind the social uh, gospel. Uh, there may even be some in our midst who define the gospel as this do-goodism. Dr. Gresham Machen in the 1920s, who was part of the USA church when he was fighting against liberalism in the church, this is really one of the major elements he was fighting against, where they had taken the true gospel of Jesus Christ and they had turned it into this do-goodism. And I read a quote in a book, and I don't remember the book, but it basically said something to this effect. Because there were those in the church who said, "Oh, it's just a different variation of the Christian walk," you know. Just you got to accept them. Doctor Machen said, "No, I don't know what they call it, but that is not the Christian religion. That um, it's a completely different religion." And we know from the Word of God that man can do no good unless, the, if the Spirit is not well within us. He may do good deeds, but he can't do good. I always use the example of one of your children here ran out in the road uh, and a car was coming and there was a man standing out there who was a murderer. He was a wicked man, did all kinds of wicked things. If he ran out into the road and pushed that, your child out of the road so that the truck or the vehicle didn't hit him, would we say he is a good man? No. He did a good deed, But he's not a good man because only God can make us good. You know, in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, it says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So when we're defining what is salt, the preserver, the only place that the do-good movement that I'm referring to can end up is where we are today in our society, in our world, or worse. Because of the sinfulness of man, those that call the gospel or salt as the do-good movement, where men will not change internally, but they're just trying to change their outward behavior, what those do-gooders will ultimately end up doing is They'll seek the power of the state to try and make society fair and equitable. And the harder they try to make it fair, the less fair it becomes because their deeds are not good. They try and change the outward behavior without change of the heart. Many of you remember that are old enough the uh, temperance movement in the United States in the 1920s where they wanted to abolish, abolish alcohol because they thought alcohol was sin. Well, alcohol is not sin. It's the misuse of alcohol. It's the misuse of many things that are the sin, not the object themselves. And so that that didn't work. They tried to use the power of the state to do that. But anyway, my point is, in all that I've said just there, is that that is not true salt. If it's about doing things so that men may be glorified by your actions – That is not true salt and light. So what is true salt and light? Well, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which is a very familiar passage, it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, By the renewal of your mind, testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In order to be salt, one must first be changed by the giver of salt, because you cannot have saltiness without a Savior. And then it says we're to renew our minds. And what that means, I would put that in today's vernacular, That means that we are to use the means of grace God has given us to keep our saltiness. And so what is that saltiness that we're talking about? Well, I've listed a couple, and I'm sure that uh, you could come up with others, but the ones that I uh, think about the most, God has given us the church, where we are strengthened, we are encouraged, we are built up. And even imperfect men present the gospel. But God uses his word to speak to our hearts and to change lives. God has given us this table that we're going to uh, stand around today. Where sinners can remember their release from the change of sin. What God has done for us on the cross. He's given us a means of grace. Called baptism, where we see the outpouring of God's Spirit upon us, and we are identified with Christ. And then He has given us His very Word that we may understand. You know, and I, I, I never, I always said this is the Word of God. It's a cliche term, but when you really think about this, this is God speaking to us. These are the very words of God. Uh. It's wonderful. He's given us his his word. So, these are some of the means of grace that God gives us so that the salt may be preserved and kept. But I think about this, and talking as I was preparing for this and thinking about salt, I'm amazed, and I know I'm guilty of this too, how many of us treat this Christian walk here on this earth. We treat it sort of like a menu in a restaurant. We look at the Christian walk you know in a restaurant what do you do? you open it up you've got all these choices and you select the things that you want because you don't have to eat everything. And how many of us treat our Christian walk just like a menu in a restaurant? We decide the things we want to be involved in, not what God requires of us. For instance and you everyone has to, internalize these things there may be things that are struggles for you that are not for me and vice versa but you know do we do we have time for everything else but the church and his work Do we have activities and such uh, that we involve ourselves in that keep us so busy that we can't even participate and be a part of the, the the life of the church and to be there to help others I mean, the church, since God has given it to us, this is where some our salt is preserved, it's where we're encouraged. Do we think about the needs of others, the elderly, the infirm, and how we will care for them in order to glorify God? Because we do those things not just so we can feel good. We do those things so that God may be glorified. You know, I've thought for a long time here, one thing that's concerned me is we're all getting older. Uh, and I think I'm getting close. I'm not quite up with Phil and D yet, but, but, and, and I was, but I'm getting close to being, you know, at the top, top of the list there. You know, how do we think about when, when those people can't, or myself, can't drive a car, or I can't get here. How do we minister to them? How do we glorify God? How are we salt in their lives? Because the world doesn't understand these things. How do we encourage those people? Um, one of the other uh, things that, that I ask when, we, when we're talking about the means of grace here do many of us take the attitude if a problem is not on my doorstep, it's not my issue? You know, I think about the subject, I'm just going to pick one, but I picked the subject of abortion. I think if you went to most people in the evangelical community, they would tell you they're against abortion. But probably a large percentage of them have never written a letter, made contact, or said anything to anyone because it's not on their doorstep. It doesn't, it doesn't affect them. Uh, if you remember the story of the Romans, during the, uh, the fall of Rome, Romans were taking their children and throwing them over the hill. And the Christians were going out and rescuing those children and adopting them, Christianizing them, and bringing them into their homes and their families. Well, it would have been very easy to say, hey, I'm not I'm not getting rid of my children. I'm taking care of my children, doing things, you know, and just turn the other way because it's not on your doorstep. But when those Christians rescued those children, the world can't understand that because that's not... In the psyche of who we are in the flesh. Only God can give us those things. He can give us that salt. Uh, and I just found this. I was reading something this morning. And I read this regarding the church. Because the church is primarily how we're to be salt in light to the world. This was a, a symposium that took place uh, with a group of uh, lawyers talking about what's called the common law. And this one professor made this comment, which I thought was very interesting. It says, Professor Hadley Arkes lays much of the responsibility at the feet of the religious-minded Americans rather than the courts. True, the court system, and especially the U.S. Supreme Court, have committed egregious crimes against the Constitution and the natural law. But their decisions have not provoked much in the way of public outcry. Whether the issue has been abortion or euthanasia or gay rights, the courts have taken steps that were noticeable even at a time as novel and pretentious. But these moves seem to have struck no chord, no moral or religious nerve running through the broad public. Now, for the Christian, we are the ones that should be the most vocal. That doesn't necessarily mean... We're out there waging a war, but but if we're to be sight if we're to be light and salt in our society, there must be things that should be evident in our lives. One question regarding how we use the means of grace. I wonder how many of us here have things in our lives that we know God requires of us and that we should be doing. But we have chosen not to do those things because we don't want to. I have to you know, point at me when I say that because uh, God has given us this church. He's given us one another. And yet there are times when we step back from things we know we ought to do because we want our way, not God's way. Generally, I would say, when you see uh, Christians that choose this what I call pick-and-choose type of Christianity or type of Christian life, you'll generally observe problems in their lives. When our text in verse 13 talks about the salt losing its savor, these are the types of things which diminish that Savior, Savior. So, we retain our saltiness, as the Bible says, that you are the salt of the earth, for the disciples when the Lord spoke to them. We retain our saltiness by living lives, by the power of the Holy Spirit, consistent with the Word of God. This is applied to our individual lives, our family lives, and our communities. If others... Could see with the help of a camera, or as they say, if others could be a fly on the wall, and they could see each of us acting in each of those spheres family, our individual lives, and then our communities. Um, Would they see true, true Christian living? Would they see salt? Would they see the effect of salt and light? Being salt in this world requires that we daily die to self. And that's not something we can do in and of ourselves. We seek to please God because he lives within us. You know, I remember uh, if you read in scripture when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was the God of all creation. He was getting ready to die for mere mortal men. And he knew that he would have to go to the cross to effect that change. And he said in the garden of Gethsemane, "Not my will, but thine." And I ask all of you the question: Do we live our lives that way? Not my will, Lord, but thine. You know, part of the problems we have in the with the American church and with Christians in the Western world is we sort of live in an anomaly, in that we live in a society. At least it's been more true, maybe not as true uh, today as it was 50 or 100 years ago. But we live in a society that has been greatly affected by the true salt and light of the gospel. Now, not everyone was a believer, but we we live in a society that has been greatly affected by that. There are many even today inside and outside of the church who would identify as Christians. But they're, as the saying goes, they're as lost as a goose. But they're living off the residual of what our society had. So much of our society was affected by the external appearance of Christianity. It wasn't true Christianity, but was affected by the external uh, appearance of Christianity. And what has happened in our society is we have let down our guard. And slowly change began to take place. in in the world because we were no longer salt and we were no longer light so that it has affected not only the society but we in the church are beginning to look and reflect more of the society we live in than the society reflects those that are the true salt and the true light. We turn the raising of our children over to a culture, and we now see the results, even in the church. We are reaping the results in our personal lives and churches in our land today. Where is the salt and light? And are you the living salt and light? I want to read one portion of uh, a comment that Dr. Francis Schaeffer made in the book How Should We Then Live? And he's talking about history and culture and how Christians impact those things. Now, he doesn't use the word Christian, but you can just think that through. Those that have the inward change of heart and are salt and those that do not. And I quote Dr. Schaeffer, There's a flow to history and culture. This flow is rooted and has its well-springs in the thoughts of people. People are unique in the inner life of the mind. What they are in their thought world determines how they act. This is true of their value system and it is true of their creativity. It is true of their corporate actions such as political decisions and it is true of their personal lives. The results of the thought world flow through their fingers, and from their tongues into the external world. This is true of Michelangelo, the sculptor, his chisel. He turned through his thoughts and his chisel. He turned that stone into a sculptor. And it is true of the dictator's sword. People have presuppositions. Presupposition is a belief that you have going into something. And it says... People have presuppositions and they will live more consistently on the basis of their presuppositions than even they themselves may realize. So what's in your heart comes out. Even if you say one thing, but what's shown in your actions portrays another. By presuppositions, we mean the way an individual looks at life, his basic worldview, the grid through which he sees the world. Presuppositions rest upon that which a person considers to be the truth of what exists. People's presuppositions lay a grid for all they bring forth into the eternal world. Their presuppositions also provide the basis for their values and therefore the basis for their decisions. As a man thinketh, so is he. It is really profound. As it, An individual is not just the product of the forces around him, He has a mind, an inner world. Then having thought, a person can bring forth actions into the eternal world and thus influence it. People are apt to look at the outer theater of action, forgetting the actor who lives in the mind and who therefore is the true actor in the external world. The internal internal thought world determines the outward action. So in other words, if we look at Scripture... Matthew 15, 18 says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defines a person. Now, I want to step back just for a second and say one other thing, because I mainly have been talking about the salt, but light. said light gives direction. Think about uh, if you're in a room that's totally dark, and just a match, a small match is written. You can see by that, that light And if Christ resides within us and we are seeking to live consistent godly lives, the world can't help but see the light. Now, they may reject it, but they cannot help but see the light that was within us. And our light happens as a result of Him who dwells within. You cannot hide light. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 says, For at one time you were darkness." But now you are light in the Lord. So I conclude today with Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. My prayer is that each of us would reflect on what was said today, that we are salt and light. And I say that if you don't know the one who gives the light and gives salt, because just because you're in church doesn't mean that's true in your life, call out to Him today, to the one who can change you from the inside and make you truly good. Amen. Pray, gracious Lord and Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Word. You have given us the Church. You have given us uh, the means of many means of grace, whereby we may grow. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us today to understand what it really means to be salt in our world, and how to preserve that savor of that salt. Preserve us through a wicked world which is at enmity with you. Father, I pray that you would help us in understanding what it means to be light and a witness and a testimony round about. We ask, Lord, that all those who are your sheep may be drawn to you and that if there are any, even today, if there are any in our midst that know not the great shepherd, that you would draw your sheep even unto yourself.